Thanks. Thanks, Ben. If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Luke chapter 23. We're going to work with the same large section that we took last week, which is Jesus making his way to the cross and then sort of the initial moments on the cross. So that's verse 26 down to 43. Last week, we focused on the first half of that. This week, we're going to start in verse 35 and really focus down through verse 43. John Calvin, in his seminal work, his institutes, he starts by saying this, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. This morning, we're going to see the, maybe one of the Bible's clearest narrative pictures of that truth. A man who in a moment of striking clarity sees clearly who he is and who God is, and then that leading him into salvation. If you've got your Bible open, this is Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. It says this, as they led him away, that's Jesus, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian who was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we are getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, the truth of who you are, and the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God, I pray that your spirit would take your word, open our hearts and minds so that we might see it with clarity. Help us to cherish and to cling to, to lift high and to proclaim the beauty of the gospel we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last few weeks, as we've been working through the last week of Jesus's life here in the Gospel of Luke, we've been using this sort of timeline. It shows you kind of where the events in Jesus's last week take place and what the timing is. And so the box is around the crucifixion. That's where we are this morning. Jesus has been awake for a very, very long time. 
The next passage here is going to tell us that it was about noon and darkness came over the whole land. So we're just shortly before noon on Friday of Jesus. This is the last day before Jesus' death. He's going to resurrect and he'll be around for a while after that. But this is essentially the final moments here of Jesus' life. What we're going to see as we work through this, Luke kind of sets the scene starting in verse 35, then there's a conversation that takes place. And what happens here at Golgotha, the place they called the skull, Calvary, it's this hill outside the walls of Jerusalem, it's overlooking the city. And what takes place there is that what everyone thought was just another Roman execution, a crucifixion, actually becomes a coronation of the king. And in the middle of that, a man who faced the certainty of death is assured the certainty of life. And while we glance at everybody else and gaze at Jesus, what we're going to see is a saving Savior. He goes to the cross for the salvation of humanity, and while he's there, he saves a sinner. So we'll just work our way through that. We're going to land here at the work of salvation is the mission of Jesus for the whole of his life. The work of salvation is the mission of Jesus for the whole of his life, literally up until his dying breath. Before we get into the crux of the conversation that takes place between the two criminals, I wanna do sort of like a big picture flyover. Luke kind of sets the scene. The people stood watching and the leaders were scoffing. Jesus, presumably these other two criminals, they carry their crosses through the city of Jerusalem, out the gate, up the hill to where the the vertical part of the cross is waiting for them and they're going to be crucified. Crowds line the street. They're jeering at these three men. Everybody would follow along behind the crosses. And when they get there, this horrible execution becomes like a spectator event. Everybody stands there on this hill watching as these three men slowly die. Scan backward, though. Because before we get to what's happening there, it's important to see what Luke is doing. The whole of his gospel has presented Jesus as king. That he is this capital K king of a coming kingdom. And that when you become one of his followers, you become a citizen of that kingdom. And as the end of Jesus's life rushes toward him, Luke is putting that into greater and greater clarity. So if you've got a Bible on your phone, swipe back once to get to chapter two. If you need to flip backward in a hard copy, Flip back, chapter 22, verse 39, Jesus is praying in the garden. That's where he's betrayed by Judas and arrested. They then take him to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, and it's in the courtyard of Caiaphas's house, starting in verse 54 there, that Peter denies Jesus three times. There at Caiaphas's house, Jesus has sort of the first of his trials, if you will, He's beaten, he's mocked. At about daybreak, when daylight came, we're told in verse 66, they take him to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish leaders of the time, they've got one question for Jesus, verse 67. If you are the Messiah, tell us. Messiah means anointed one. If you're the king, if you're anointed, tell us. Then he ends up at Pilate, before Pilate, the Roman leader there. He's got one question. Luke chapter 23, verse 3. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes or no? 
by the end of that, Pilate's going to say, look, I don't find any grounds for charging this man. I don't think he's guilty, but he's also not of my jurisdiction because he's from Galilee. So he sends him over to Herod. They take Jesus across town over to Herod's place. Herod is excited to see Jesus. That's verse 8 in chapter 23. He asks some questions. Jesus gives him no answer. In verses 10, 11, and 12, we're told that not getting any response and not getting to see the miracle that he was hoping for, Herod mocks Jesus, insults him, dresses him up. The CSB translates it as in bright clothing. They dress him up as a mock king. They send him back. This man's not a king. He's a joke. This whole thing's a circus. Sends him back over to Pilate. Pilate then tries again to say that Jesus is innocent. The crowd wants Barabbas instead of Jesus. They strap the cross to Jesus' back. He's beaten a final time. He can't carry it himself. They pull Simon off the side of the road. They get to Golgotha. Verse 35. The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others Let him save himself, if this is God's Messiah, anointed one. If this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Look what the soldiers are saying. They offer him sour wine and said, if you are king, save yourself. They put an inscription up there above him, the king of the Jews. We're told that one of the criminals there that's being crucified with him, verse 39, yells as an insult. Aren't you the Messiah, the King? Save yourself and us. In Mark and Matthew's account of this, it's both criminals. One on either side, yelling the insults, yelling the mocking. Are you the King or are you not? Catch what's happened. This whole chain of events. Sometimes we ask a question like, how is it that God can take the wickedness and the sin of humanity and use it for his good purposes. Here's an incredible narrative picture. Notice who never says he's the king, Jesus. Notice who does call this guy king. The Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, the soldiers, the people who are mocking him and watching, and the criminals on either side of him. And so it's literally from the mouths of sinning humanity that Jesus is declared king. And there at this crucifixion, what you've ultimately got is a coronation. Here's the king. He's not gonna save himself. He could call down angels and have himself taken off the cross. But he's not gonna do it because he's there for a reason and he's committed to that reason. In the end, everyone else proclaims the kingship of Jesus other than Jesus. So you've got the king up there on the cross and you've got a man on either side of him also being crucified. And you get this sort of comparison contrast. And Luke has been using couplets like this all throughout his gospel. They all lead up to this one. Just think back. At Jesus' birth, you've got two pregnant women. Elizabeth, who's been barren her entire life and wanted a child, and Mary, who's very young and the worst thing that could happen before she gets married is that she's found to be pregnant. They both end up pregnant. Mary, by the whole, you know, miraculously by the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth, pregnant naturally. They have two children. Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah. Mary gives birth to 
Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple. There are two people who have been waiting for the Messiah for their whole lives. Simeon, a priest, who holds Jesus in his hands and says, now, God, you can dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen the salvation of your people. And Anna, a priestess, who's been faithfully ministering there at the temple her entire life, she bursts into song when Jesus is brought in. Throughout the course of Jesus's ministry, You've got people in two very distinct groups, outcasts who receive the good news of the gospel with joy and these respectable religious leaders who hear Jesus' teaching and have contempt for him, want him dead. Throughout Jesus' preaching, he often uses two things set side by side in order to illustrate a point, sheep and goats, wheat and chaff. Good trees with good fruit, bad trees with bad fruit. He gives a parable about two sons, an older son and a younger son. All of these kinds of comparisons Luke uses to illustrate spiritual truth in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And it culminates with these two gentlemen crucified on the cross. They're flanking Jesus in the middle of what everyone thinks is just another Roman execution happening outside of Jerusalem, but it's actually the coronation of the king. And what does the king do right until the end? He saves. One of these men has a moment of incredible clarity, goes from mocking and scoffing at Jesus and insulting him, jeering at him, to defending Jesus and repenting before him. Salvation required the sacrifice of Jesus. That salvation is received by God's grace through repentant faith in the work of Jesus. And so verse 39, you get the start of this conversation. One criminal hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And then the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God? since you are undergoing the same punishment? In everything that this man says, we're gonna get a picture of what repentance looks like. True repentance recognizes the reality of God. John Calvin, all the true wisdom that we possess consists of two things, knowledge of God and a knowledge of ourselves. It's not enough to just understand ourselves. It's not enough to simply say, ah, maybe I'm not perfect, and then end there. It's not enough to say, I have sin and I'm sad about sin. I'm sad about the consequences of sin. I'm sad about what sin brings into my life. That's not enough. It's not enough to just have frustration about the reality of sin as it exists in the world. Like, oh, look at all the brokenness and the ugliness and all the bad things that happen around us. That's not enough. Repentance is in a direction. Repentance is in response to something. It literally means to turn from one thing toward another, to turn from sin toward God. Don't you even fear God? That's where this man on the cross starts. Like, don't you understand who God is and what he would be capable of? Like the judgment that we deserve? Like here's this, other criminal continuing to scoff at Jesus and this man has a striking moment of clarity. 
understanding who God is. He says, don't you even fear him. True repentance recognizes the reality of God. We must have knowledge of who God is. But true repentance also recognizes sin and its consequences. We also have to understand something of ourselves. That sin lives in us, that its reach is total, that its consequences are serious, that we're incapable of correcting any of it on our own. Verse 41, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. He's holy and righteous to be feared, the man on the cross says. We are sinful and broken to be judged justly for our sin, getting back what we deserve for the things that we do. This man on the cross has a moment of true wisdom. This is who God is, and this is who I am. But the beauty of the gospel is that when we come to true understanding of who God is and all of his holiness and righteousness and who we are and all of our sinfulness and brokenness, that's not a place of hopelessness because there's a saving savior. And so true repentance recognizes Jesus' sufficiency to save. And this man turns to Jesus, verse 42, and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All this mocking about Jesus being a king, all the insults, all of the go ahead and save yourself if you're actually the king, the mocking sign, everybody sort of laughing at this man that people are claiming is king and one guy gets it. And despite the fact that nothing that's happened up to this point would lead him to believe that this man is a king, he looks at Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Like one guy understands the just, righteous holiness of God, the sinful brokenness of humanity, and that Jesus can save. Notice what's hardwired into that. Yes, in understanding that I cannot save myself. Yes, in understanding that Jesus can save, but also the humility to both ask for and receive what Jesus has to offer. We as Americans are by nature a self-sufficient people. Independence and self-reliance are kind of hardwired into our cultural identity. They're celebrated as virtues. But to come to Christ requires the recognition that in a spiritual sense, independence and self-reliance are a road to hell. If you think that everything that you have or that you need to be saved is just inside of you, that only has one ending point. And it's hell. The true knowledge of ourselves, sinful and broken, and God, holy and righteous. Those are true wisdom that ultimately should lead us to repentance. We see ourselves correctly. We see God correctly. And when we get to that place by his grace, we're met with a saving savior. And I want to turn to what Jesus says back to this man in verse 43. But first, I want to make one observation. There are two men there, as well as a crowd of onlookers. Those two men on either side of Jesus, they're both having the same life experience in this moment. 
They're feeling the same physical sensations in the midst of their crucifixion. They're hearing the same things being hurled at Jesus. They're watching the same things play out. But only one is saved. One by grace repents, while presumably the other does not. And though there's no thorough or perfect explanation for these kinds of things, it's worth noting that not everyone is moved to salvation, not moved at the same time, not moved by the same experiences or by the same means, certainly not moved at any time. It's always interesting on this side of the sermon, like I'm up here most weeks, to see and hear about the way the Holy Spirit and the Lord's word intersect in people's lives. And sometimes, you know, people will say like, hey, that sermon was great. Sometimes you get absolutely no feedback. Sometimes my parents, who I love and are my biggest supporters, but also my most honest critics, will say, it was all right. (laughs) But that is the case when we present the gospel as well. Like sometimes we present the gospel in a setting like this, like we do every single Sunday and we hold out the offer of salvation and some people respond and some people do not. I wish I could say that every Sunday when we share the truth of the gospel from up here, that every person not saved in attendance that Sunday comes to faith. That would be a lie. I wish I could say that every single Sunday when we share the gospel from this place, somebody comes to faith. That doesn't always happen either. But there are moments where by God's grace, his word and his spirit intersect in a person's life and they're moved by his grace into faith. Our responsibility is simply to share. We are not held responsible for the results. God did not call us to go and to be the means by which we save people. God called us to be faithful to share the message of the gospel and allow him to be the one that saves people. What you have on the cross is a saving savior and he is capable to save. He simply asks his people to share and then get out of the way and let him save. That's the whole of his life. The work of salvation is the mission of Jesus for the whole of his life. And the message of salvation ought to be the mission of Jesus' people for the whole of our lives. A saving savior. When the whole of God's people function in accordance with their varied gifts and passions and talents and positions... Yes, we operate obediently to the king. Yes, we have our widest reach for the sake of the gospel. Yes, Jesus works through us to save his people, but most importantly, he is glorified in our obedience. The king saves. He's a saving savior. He only asks that we obediently share. I don't know what your translation labels this section as. It it also could label in different places depending on the English translation that you have. Mine before verse 32 says, crucified between two criminals. That's the CSB. Your translation might put the section break somewhere else and it might say something like the thief on the cross or the criminal on the cross. We often talk about this man by that title. Ah, he's the thief on the cross. And we label this passage and this conversation in that sort of way. But I think that gets the label a little bit askew for two reasons. Number one, 
By the time this whole thing is done, thief is no longer this man's primary identity. He's a child of God, a follower of Jesus, a brother in Christ. He's going to be there in eternity, brothers and sisters, when we arrive. And I don't think in heaven we're going to say, hey, thief. I don't think that's how it's going to work. Mostly because you're not going to be there labeled by your worst sin. You're going to be there labeled by the righteousness of Christ. And so what we have here is not primarily a thief on a cross. We've got a follower of Jesus on the cross. We've got a disciple on the cross, a child of God on the cross. And so we get the label wrong for that reason. I think the other reason we get the label wrong a little bit here is because the only reason we know about the man on one side of Jesus is because of the guy on the sinner cross. Thousands of people were crucified throughout Roman history. We don't know most of their names. We don't know most of their stories. We know this guy's because Jesus was on the cross in the middle. And the work that the saving savior does makes it so that we know who this man is. And so we're glancing at everything around Jesus, but we're gazing at the Savior. In the middle of dying on the cross to secure salvation for sinful humanity, Jesus is busy saving a sinner. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon on this passage, says, Jesus took the convert on the cross with him to paradise as a specimen of what he meant to do. He seemed to say to all the heavenly powers, I bring a sinner with me. He is the pattern for all who are to come. We're gonna sing a song after the sermon. The middle verse says, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Yes, this man goes to Golgotha as a thief who is hung on the cross, but by the time this thing's over, he's no longer primarily a thief. He's been saved by a saving savior. Note one more thing before we look at what Jesus says. If ever there was a picture of what humanity brings to their salvation, this man gives it. And the answer is, not a thing. This guy has no time to clean up his act, and yet Jesus saves him. His only track record is one that lands him on that cross, and yet Jesus saves him. This guy can do nothing to help along his salvation, and yet Jesus saves him. He has nothing to offer but his dying life, and Jesus saves him. That's the exact same thing you bring to your salvation. And if you're ever tempted to think that it was like your loveliness that made you savable, Remind yourself of this man because we're no different. Jesus is a saving savior. Right up until his dying breath, Jesus is saving sinners. After he resurrects, Jesus is saving sinners. Seated on the throne right now, Jesus is saving sinners. And now in one sentence, we see a bunch of what that saving entails. Jesus looks at this man and he says, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Just soak these words in for a second. Truly, I tell you, Jesus saves certainly. There are six times in the gospel of Luke that Luke records Jesus using that phrase, truly, I tell you. And all six times are rock solid, take it to the bank sort of guarantees. 
Truly, I tell you, Jesus says in Luke 4, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. He says that in Nazareth. And then what do the people do there? Run them out to a cliff and try to throw them off. Luke 12, Jesus is giving a parable about a banquet and the servants that are preparing the banquet, waiting for the master to come home. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, then come and serve them. Jesus is having children brought to him in Luke chapter 18. He says, truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. What's the problem or the promise? Humility is absolutely necessary in order to be saved. Later in Luke chapter 18, Jesus says this, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife or brothers or sisters, parents or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. What's the promise? There will be sacrifices to following Jesus and yet the rewards will always outweigh the sacrifices. Luke chapter 21, truly I tell you this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words never will. That's a promise, a guarantee. And what's the certainty this time? That when Jesus saves, It isn't something he's trying to do. It's not something he's attempting to do. It's not something he's hoping to do. When Jesus saves, he saves certainly. He does it truly. There is no need to think to yourself, well, I placed my faith in Jesus and I hope that's enough. Brother and sister in Christ, it is. Because when he saves, he saves certainly. Truly, I tell you, Jesus says. Jesus saves personally. There are two men up there, right? There's a crowd full of people, religious leaders, Roman officials. Jesus looks at this one man and he says, truly, I tell you. Not someone else, not you and this other guy because he happens to be there, not you and this crowd because they heard me say it, just this one man. Jesus saves personally. He saves us personally, works with us personally, changes us personally, knows us personally, is available to us personally. The gospel is for the nations, every tribe, nation, and tongue. But Jesus saves individuals from among the nations individually. And yet there's a helpful corrective here to our overly individualistic society because once he saves us personally, he he brings us into his new kingdom people collectively God unites us collectively as his people, uses us collectively for his glory, takes the gospel to the ends of the earth through his people collectively, and one day will sweep us collectively into his presence. You cannot be saved on the back of anyone else, but once saved, you were not intended to walk with Jesus alone. You're brought in to the new kingdom of his people under his lordship. It's not, well, Jesus saved me and now it's just me and Jesus, nobody else. No, Jesus saved you personally, that is true. And now it's you and Jesus and all of his people living to glorify him here and now until he returns, at which point we will join him collectively in his presence for all of eternity. Jesus says, truly, I tell you today, he saves immediately There's no sugarcoating the moment here. 
Jesus knows that he's going to die on the cross. He's been talking about it for a long time. He knows that this man is going to die on the cross. Jesus is not going to do a miraculous thing that stops the inevitability of their physical death. By his grace and according to his will, he brought Lazarus back from the dead. By his grace and according to his will, he healed people from life-threatening diseases. In the Lazarus account, when he goes to the tomb where Lazarus is and Lazarus' family is upset and mourning his death, Jesus says, this has happened that you might see the glory of God. And then he raises Lazarus. In this instance, this man on the cross next to Jesus dies and the result is the same, that people might see the glory of God. How? Through this beautiful statement. Truly, I tell you, today. No waiting, not something that happens later. It will be today. The gift of salvation comes with no waiting period. There is no, well, let's wait and see what happens. It is immediate. Death to life happens in an instant. All of the covenant promises of salvation become yours instantly. Jesus saves immediately. Jesus saves relationally. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me. The great gift of salvation is Jesus. Those two words, with me, are two of the most precious words in all of human history, and they ought to be two of the most precious words to God's people. What were you before salvation? Without him. What was your eternal prospect before salvation? Without him. How were you forced to navigate the pain and difficulty of life in a broken world before salvation? You were forced to navigate it without him. But then a saving savior changes everything. Jesus saved you certainly, personally, immediately, and relationally. He brought you to himself. And now what are you? You're with him. Now what is your eternal prospect? It's one that's with him. Now what do you have as you navigate the pain and difficulty of life in a broken world? You have him. That's the great gift. That's not to say that there aren't all sorts of other wonderful gifts that come with salvation. Forgiveness, grace, mercy, spiritual gifts, and on and on. But none of that comes close to the reality that you have Jesus. Now and forever. He's going to be the best part of heaven. Yeah, Revelation says there's no sin there. That's a big deal. I promise it will be wonderful. Revelation tells us there's no pain there. That's a big deal. Probably gonna be nice. Revelation tells us there will be no tears there, that he will wipe them from every eye. That feels like a big deal. Probably going to be nice. But Jesus, he's there, and that's the real gift. You, me, the nations, Jesus, face-to-face, in-person, forever. That's the great gift of salvation. Samuel Rutherford, he was a Scottish pastor in the 1600s. He wrote in his journal the following, Oh my Lord Jesus, if I could be in heaven without you, it would be a hell to me. And if I could be in hell and have you still, it would be a heaven to me. For you are all the heaven I want. He is the gift. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me. Jesus saves relationally and he saves eternally in paradise. Eternity in the presence of the Lord. 
a return with Jesus to the perfection of the Garden of Eden, a new heaven and earth without the presence of all the strife and difficulty that exists in this world, a place most notably marked, Revelation says, by the fact that God will dwell with his people. Jesus is a saving savior, a saving savior who saves certainly, personally, immediately, relationally, eternally. The work of salvation is the mission of Jesus for the whole of his life. Right up until the very end, the king is doing what the king does. He goes to the cross for the salvation of his people. And while he's there, he saves. Where he sits now, he's still saving. Until the moment he returns in glory, he is saving. He can do no other. That's who he is. The whole of salvation, or the work of salvation is the mission of Jesus for the whole of his life. I want to end with one other observation. Life within a local church is always marked by loss. There are always those among us at any given time who are experiencing grief, pain associated with mourning the loss of a loved one. In a church this size, you can be fairly confident that at any given moment, someone is wrestling through the grief associated with losing a family member or a close friend. And we tend to reserve these sorts of words for funerals as if they're the only place where such comfort is needed. But I just want to close this morning by saying this. If you've lost a loved one recently, or you're still grieving the loss of a loved one from years ago, and that person had been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, take heart. Rest easy. They're with him in paradise. The pain that we feel in their absence is real and it is difficult and it's something that we will often carry with us for the entirety of the remainder of our lives. We long for that person We hold on to the memories that we have with that person. We think of them at holidays or birthdays or at certain anniversaries of their passing. And I don't say this to diminish your love for that person or their love for you. But when they passed, if they had been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they're no longer subject to the longings of this life. They're eternally whole, at peace today with him. I mean, think about what the rest of this man on the cross's life must have been like. We don't know when he died in comparison or in relation to when Jesus dies, but he hears these words. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then there's all the pain associated with the rest of his life up until the moment he dies. And with his dying breath, he's clinging to those words. Today, I'm going to be with him in paradise. Your loved ones saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ with their dying breath, clinging to that promise, they're with him forever. It's been a number of years, but I remember very, very poignantly um, a Sunday after, I had just done a funeral on Saturday. It was a funeral for a man that 
uh, was dear to our congregation. I loved him uh, personally. He was a mentor to me. We did the funeral on Friday, or on Saturday. On Sunday, we were here at church and we're singing a song about eternity. And I, I remember so clearly, I'm standing back there right underneath the exit sign by these doors over here. And we get to the kind of the chorus of the song and I just burst into tears like joy. Because the thing that we were singing about longing for, he was experiencing. Like we come together and we sing about this day where there won't be pain and there won't be tears and everyone will bow before him and we long for that day to come. This man that I was aching over the loss of, he was experiencing it right then. Like today, he was with Jesus in paradise. Those are the most wonderful words for followers of Jesus to just cling on to. Whether in seasons of loss and grief, which you might be in right now, but also as we think about what the end of our life will be like. Jesus promises us that he saves certainly, he saves personally, he saves immediately, he saves relationally, and he saves eternally. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.